Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today to talk all things <laughs> Empires of Dust. We're going to get into all three books. It will be spoiler-filled, so if you have not read the series, uh, don't spoil yourself. Go read it, and then come back and watch. And today, we are honored to be joined with Anna Smith-Spark. Anna, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hi. And we're also here with uh, our friends Katerina and, of course, PL. Uh, Katerina, do you want to give us an introduction? Sure. Uh, I'm just a casual fantasy reader, but I finished the Empires of Dust uh, trilogy a few months ago, and I absolutely loved it. I'm, and I'm so honored and so thrilled that I get to be talking to the author and, and to you guys as well. <laughs> you guys are okay, too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and PL? Uh, yeah, I'm P.L. Stewart, author of the Drowned Kingdom uh, saga, and, uh, you know, very honored to meet Katarina, and, of course, it's phenomenal to see uh, Anna again, and uh, loved loved her books, her writing is just phenomenal, the prose, I mean, chef's kiss, you know how I, those of you who know me know how I feel about about uh, prose, and uh, some of the best uh, that I've read in fantasy, so, yeah, I'm just happy to be here, and uh, listen to Anna talk about uh, her books, and, and gain more insights, and and I uh, learned from Steve and Katrina. Awesome. So, so that's a good segue because, and I wanted to ask you about your prose and how you would describe it, or if there's a uh, certain style that you try to write in, or is it just something that comes naturally to you? It actually, it does come really naturally. I mean, it's really important to me that the prose is good. The prose is, if you think about it, the plot of Empires of Dust and is really quite simple. It's not a kind of really twisty, turny, lots of plot twists. Obviously, there are things that happened in it that surprised me, but it's not a kind of thrillery kind of what's going to happen next, what's the plot twist, what are the reveals. It's a very simple story, but the prose is what really matters to me, right? It's a, the prose as a way of expressing emotion and a way of describing the world that they're that the characters inhabiting and how they feel about the world putting you absolutely in that kind of mental experience and also just having beautiful prose is something that huge that's hugely important to me um my if anyone has heard me talk before they know they'll be so bored of this but I'm talking about this all the time but my dad's a poet so i kind of grew up with and he's also an english teacher he's taught english at um a level the standard, which I don't know what the American equivalent of that is, like sort of before you need to get into university. So we taught English um, at sort of fairly high level and read it, sort of was obviously very well read and had a lot of wrote poetry and had a lot of edited poetry. So I just kind of grew up, I did grow up with language around me and with poetic language and with kind of high literature around me, I had an incredible upbringing from that point of view. So um, I've got, so that that is where my writing comes from. I didn't sort of when I, I guess when I actually when I sat down to write the book, which is the first thing I ever wrote in a first piece of fiction I ever wrote as an adult. I used to write all the time as a child, and then I just stopped writing. And what became chapter two of the Court of Broken Knives is the first thing I ever wrote in prose as an adult after years of not being able to write. And it wasn't like I'm going to start writing a fantasy novel. It was I'm going to start writing and really just playing around with prose mm. and describing stuff. I don't this just this image came into my head of these people in the desert, and then there was the description of the dragon. And even then, it wasn't like it was almost like okay, there's a dragon in this. This is probably going to go a bit fantasy. 
and then there was the stuff about the city and the people in the city and the palace and that was again that was like because it was just playing around with words and just trying to find words of describing all that stuff so a lot of like the stuff Marith really kind of emerged to me as a character because I started writing that little scene where he looks where it's raining there's a little there's a little scene where it's dark and he watches the sun come up in the desert and there's a scene where it starts to rain and he starts thinking about how it, and it's talking about his experience of the rain in the desert and that was really the whole base of his character I think because that was or I kind of talk about him as if he existed already and the whole of it exists already and I was just sort of writing it down but also those scenes I just wanted to write something incredibly beautiful as beautiful as I could make it about this the memory of or the kind of things I've seen of footage of plants growing up in the desert after rain and talk writing about darkness and the sun rising and those words were what brought Marath as a sort of fully formed character to me I think so it's, it's always it was about the words first the prose the prose is the most important thing the prose is what helps me find everything and then I want for me fantasy is a genre about prose it should be anyway people are really rude about fantasy and fantasy. really awful you know some really awful snobby stuff about fantasy as a genre but actually I mean fantasy is trying to describe things that are beyond any possibility of an everyday human experience they're trying to make describe you know they're trying to describe dragons and these vast you know then sort of the lord of the rings is trying to basically present the the rings of power that's on at the moment it seems but it's basically turning the elves into angels you know it's trying to describe stuff that's like gods and dragons and angels and massive cosmic battles so it really should be about good prose describing all that and really making that real and that's that's what i want to do really just use words to make that real in people's minds. Yeah, I mean, for me, definitely the prose was the first thing that stood out to me when I started reading the series. And I I guess I never considered myself a fan of prose that's too lyrical, but I feel like in this series in particular, it's the descriptions are always, it's not, they're not just there to describe things. They're always like, they're more about evoking like emotions and images and putting you in the, in, in the locations and in the state of mind of the characters. And it works so well and it's so beautiful. And I fell yeah, that, in love with it. That's kind of important to me. So it's, um, yeah, so that was like at the moment, I'm actually, I'm reading, rereading a Mary Sutcliffe children's novels. I'm reading them to my son, the Eagle of the Ninth series. And her prose is absolutely beautiful. But then the characters aren't really interacting with the pro. She has these amazingly beautiful descriptions of the British countryside and these, these really beautiful little descriptions of, sort of people being out in the dark and they see a light. There's a wonderful bit, someone's lost in the dark and he's just run away from being a slave and he's lost in the dark and he sees a light and he finds this beautiful little peaceful place with a, where there's a monk who helps him. Or there's the first sort of these beautiful, beautiful descriptions, but the characters don't interact with it. You could just strike through all of those descriptions and you'd just be left with the really basic character, really, really basic characters having very, very basic conversations. They never seem to actually inhabit that landscape. You've got the landscape beautifully realised, then you've got the people. And I really, the way that the people are experiencing the landscape and the way that they're feeling about the world and the way they're yeah it's always about expressing their emotions and trying to put you in their heads rather than just give plonking a description of a picture there and then the characters are just kind of 
wandering around in it, not noticing it. Because that I've read a lot. I've been infant, really influenced by psychogeography as well, which um, is an immensely pretentious term, which basically means just means basically when you walk around somewhere, you know, you're not just you know when you if you go past the house that your grandma lived in and she's now dead you can't help but remember stuff or you know you go past the primary school you the, the first school you went to and you kind of remember going there when you were in it well you can't help but remember stuff and it's psychogeography is basically that it's a really pretentious word for saying you or things that you know landscapes that you live in have memories for you and you also you know about the history of them from before you can't be in a place where there was a major battle in the American Civil War, if you're American, for example, and not have some kind of, uh, you, if you know about what, if you know that, as soon as you know that fact, you can't help but have some kind of response to it. That's all psychogeography is. But I wanted to do that. Or I kind of, I just grow, I, it's something I've always, I've read a lot of stuff, read a lot of what are called psychogeographical novels and writing. So that was just a part of the book as well, that kind of sense of people in the landscape and kind of everything is all to do with how they feel rather than just a separate thing to them yeah and i really feel the prose i mean um one thing that i i i love about prose in fantasy when it's well done like anna's work is the way also conveys specific themes and of course with anna's series there's a lot of pain and loss and heartbreak and um you know um very, very dark, um, you know, themes that I think the prose just brings out so beautifully because, um, and, and I, I, I hate to compare writers, and, and I just finished reading um, uh, The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson, and, and world building was fantastic, a lot of great things in the book. Unfortunately, the prose didn't really captivate me, it didn't work for me, and, I, and that's something that I also crave in a book, is I crave that, and there were some very compelling themes in, 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 in The Way of Kings, and it was really well done. However, it didn't grab me at first because the prose didn't grab me. And I didn't find myself, unlike the way I would in, in like a book like, books like Anna's, going back and those little nuggets and those lines where you just want to reread them for the beauty of it, right? And, 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 you know, I didn't, it's not that they weren't there at all. It wasn't that there was a complete dearth of them. It was just, it didn't, it didn't work for me the same way. Um, you know the prose, such as such as I read in, in Anna's works works did, or that I'd read in Tolkien, or that I'd read in a variety of other writers I can name. Right, so I think that's really important too. When when a writer has messages to um, put into a book, that that prose is really a vehicle to convey those messages in a way that it's going to resonate um, with the reader for a long time. And I found that's definitely what what your prose did for me. <laughs> Definitely memorable. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to specifically ask you about how you write combat scenes, because I think the combat is quick and effective. And I think that's the best type of combat. And it's very disorienting um, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that uh, makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel like you're in that point of view. Is there a certain method you use to writing combat scenes from that perspective? Oh, yeah, combat is really strange for me because so I'm... I'm not physically a strong person. I mean, not healthy. I don't have particularly good physical health. I've actually got a condition called dyspraxia, which means I'm very physically clumsy. I could never do combat. I would just 
I've been in, I've done lots of panel sessions on writing fighting. I'm often asked to be on the panels on fighting fighting. And I <laughs> understand completely why I'm asked to be on them. But often I'll be, you know, there'll be several other people on there who'll be talking about the fact that they do HEMA or they do jiu-jitsu or something, or, you know, they have physical experience of either holding weapons or physically fighting people. Or actually I'll be, there'll often be someone who's been in the army and they'll be me like, well, I can't, I can't drive. Honestly, you know, I've played tennis at school. I don't think I've ever managed to hit a ball with a tennis racket ever in my entire life. <laughs> and that badly coordinated. So I have no experience at all of what any of this stuff feels like. I go to a lot of reenactment events. I'm really, I I go to a lot of kind of medieval reenactment events and civil war reenactments and things and things. But I've never participated in them because I'd just be a massive liability. Um, but I try and, I do try and put myself in the head of what it was like to feel it i could never write those very technical battle scenes that some people write with the different moves and they're kind of talking very technically about what people are doing and the different moves people like christian cameron christian slash miles cameron do it very well because he's obviously a very experienced reenactor and he knows what he's doing whereas i i'm completely actually quite baffled by some of his passages because i find it very hard to visualize what people's bodies are doing because i can't make my own body do that in the slightest but I try and put myself in the mind of how it feels how it smells how just that sense that I try and I try and actually put myself in the mind of what it would be like like if you're watching a really I want a big a piece of really really good war film something like the you know the big opening beep scene in Band of Brothers or something imagine pressing my nose right up to the tv screen so that's right there and then I try and write how that would feel I try and imagine just the sounds and the feeling so I've read an awful I've read a lot of books about military history it's something that's always really interested me my specials when I was doing um, I did my undergraduate degree was in classics and I studied the Iliad and my special subject was Alexander the Great so I've read a lot of stuff about Alexander the Great's battles and about the battles in the Iliad and I watch a lot of television that's sort of military based and I just try and use the kind of facts I know from reading a lot of military history and also just sort of imagine the kind of sense of feelings and again it's that different and it's also the projecting stuff about so I've never been in battle I've never ever been in a fight but you know I've been incredibly angry with people or I've been incredibly frightened been in situations where I've been very frightened and felt very powerless I have been in those wonderful situations where just like you know I have an office job but there's that days even an office job we have like 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 damn I'm just on fire today you know I'm just kind of <laughs> I was asked to, I was asked to clear out the stationary cupboard and my god did I clear out the stationary cupboard you know I, I've cleared out that stationary cupboard like no one else and that feeling of you know there's different feelings of like kind of today I was just absolutely whatever I did was just great or today I just you know I had such an awful day today and I just felt so frightened and you know that kind of that horrible, I, I've, the really terrible experience everyone always has going through American immigration as a where you you know you hear all these terrible stories about being deported because I do know someone who made a slightly unfortunate joke going through American immigration was immediately deported back back to Britain and those you know I have been that situation where you are in that kind of okay that chap that this guy has absolute power over whether I'm going to get 
to be a guest of honor at Gen Con or whether I'm going to be end up having to tell people I was deported from the United States of America <laughs> and someone's briefly stuck a gun up my nose, you know, is this person going to start send me aside to be strip searched or is he going to let me through? And that we've all had experiences of those different experiences one way or another. And it, I try and just put myself in, remember what that felt like and try and put that in that situation to try and sort of put, because again, a lot of it is almost just kind of, Yes, it's writing kind of medieval violence, but again, a lot of it's about the emotions that you're experiencing, the kind of moment when you are on, you are just slaying it, or you are just to, <laughs> to take a word with all fails and make it literal, or you are in that absolute powerlessness of kind of that absolutely horrible, you've been stopped by the police, you, this could just go so badly, so awfully wrong, or you're your teacher absolutely just went mental at you at school and it was nothing to do with you, but expulsion could, you know, there's that horrible moment when thinking, like, am I going to be suspended? Am I going to be expelled? What is my, what am I going to tell my mum? And it's actually a lot of writing, the fight, a lot of writing, fighting is kind of about that. It's about those extremes of emotion. So, yeah, so that's, that's how I do the fight scenes. And I do do a lot of research into historical fighting historical warfare and things because it's just it just interests me as well and it's obviously that's why i choose to write it about that rather than about a rom-com with people having i don't know emotional experiences in those situations whatever i mean i can definitely relate to some parts of that like i i also consider myself a fairly clumsy person and my spatial orientation is terrible so usually when I'm reading or even watching like action scenes or battle scenes, like my brain just tends to shut down. So to be able to relate it to like to the action to an, on like a more emotional level actually helps me a lot. Yeah. And uh, also like the, the sort of the battles in Empires of Dust, like they do feel very, they do feel realistic, but at the same time, they also have like a very mythical element to them like they they do feel like battles you, you from the iliad from from myths or legends uh with all the uh all the the bird gods and uh demons and dragons so to me like the realism of it is actually like not something that uh i care too much about it's the emotion and like the imagery of it that i i really come to appreciate yeah, I wanted to really get that weirdness as well, that sense of battle being really weird, because I suspect it probably, again, I mean, I've no idea, I've never been in a, a and even even people who've been in the modern military, I mean, most people's experience of battle, even if you've been, even if you have been in the military, and even if you were posted in Iraq or somewhere, your experience of battle is not going to be what, you know, two huge armies where you just have a bit of wood with a bit of pointy metal on the end. <laughs> it was ever going to be like, but you know, even I mean, I've been, I've never experienced combat ever, but that sense of weirdness, that sense of a recurring thing you get a lot when you read military, sort of um, military history, is people talking about that sense of there's something weird going on in the battlefield, that sense that there are other powers involved. You do get an awful lot of people talking about. There's a lot of stuff about things like gremlins in the second world war people used to talk about gremlins who sabotaged the planes or there was weird stuff there's this really strange thing this story this weird story called the battle of, about the battle of mons where people now 
now there's this whole thing now about angels appearing in the sky in the Battle of Mons, which actually was traced back to a book by Arthur Macken. But people who'd been in the Battle of Mons then began to believe it had actually happened, even though the story didn't appear until afterwards. You get lots of accounts of people talking about kind of weird things and a sense of weirdness in battle. And I think that kind of sense of strangeness of not really knowing. And obviously for most people in battle, you've got a clue what's going on. Yeah, kind of. And that, and again, that's something that comes up again and again and again. If you're just a foot soldier, you don't have a clue what's going on. And actually, even with modern radio technology and things, if you're a general, you don't really have a clue what's going on because you've got no idea what your soldiers are actually doing right on the front line. And you're trying to get orders to them and they're not really get the, the battle plan is immediately going to fall apart because you've got no idea what the other the enemy's doing and that sense of really it all just being really strange you don't know what's going on and you don't know what's about to hit you is something that i really wanted to capture and it's something as someone um i don't know maybe as someone with autism it's something i experience in daily life perhaps more, i'm more aware of <laughs> something a part of the human condition that you don't know most people don't have a clue what's going on. But I kind of that sense of alienation and weirdness is something I wanted to write about. I've actually sort of talked, I've talked to people about Malazan about that sometimes because people are like, I don't have a clue what's going on. You start reading the Gardens of the Moon and I don't have a clue. It's like, yeah, that's because it's a really realistic portrait of war and no one's got a clue. But yeah, I wanted to bring that kind of stuff, that stuff in. And also I did like writing the choreography of it. The choreography of the battles are all based on real battles. So they're based on people's attempts to do write about the choreography of real battles out of the Great Fort, which, again, no one can really know because you just try and read all these accounts and try and make some sense of, well, there's stuff that talks about Alexander charging and that broke Darius's lines. So we'll try and put people drew these little battle schematics that they think work for how the battle looked. And I do use them. I actually got some of the battle schematics to write the different description, the different stages of the big the big battles are all actual based on real battles, so I was, could see them playing out. But then that sense of, so I knew exactly where I think what was going to happen, but also with that sense of not knowing, the people not knowing what's going to happen. Mm. But yeah, they were really fun to write, the battles. It was so much fun to write, as you can probably tell. <laughs> and yeah, I'm sorry, Pia, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Steve. And I was going to ask, uh, you said you, you had done research on, on combat and his, historical mm -hmm. battles. I wondered if, if you had done research on uh, past religions, because the first, one of the things that really stuck with me after the first book is the, the role that religion plays as a control mechanism for keeping people under, under your thumb, I guess, and keeping people, you know, content or afraid or, um, you know, under control. So did you research religions or past histories of religions that you implemented in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's always something that's really interested me as well. I mean, I studied classics and trying to trying to make sense of Greek mythology is really difficult because bits of it. I mean, actually, so I've been I've been I was reading my son, the Percy Jackson books and the kind of wonderfully flippant way that they're regularly like just what the fuck, this doesn't make any sense that you could completely relate to that because of. Actually, deep down, a lot of classicists spend a lot of time. This is a wonderful thing where someone, a lot of people who are, you know, professors of Greek history will sort of, if you actually say to them, so like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, you know, some of the greatest minds, supposedly, in, certainly in European history, possibly in world history. They really believe this stuff about, like, Zeus, and he was married to his sister, and 
then he had sex with a woman when he was a swan and that was where Helen came along and you can see and they're like um well you have to understand society is very different and it was kind of more complicated than that but basically they have to be like yeah Plato kind of believed that there was this dude up on a mountain with a big white beard who threw and you can see them be like but um so yeah that kind of trying to account for what's going on and it's too simplistic just saying oh it's a method of control oh the people know you know this is made up because it isn't religion is absolutely a fundamental to all societies western europe certainly likes to pretend that unlike you americans we've moved way beyond religion but we haven't we just talk about it in slightly different ways and try and pretend that we're not religious anymore but that kind of sense of wanting to imbue some kind of meaning in the world and having some make some kind of order in the world what i think a lot of a lot of fancy novelists make the mistake of trying to codify things too much they kind of assume that because academics particularly victorian academics would put some kind of okay so zeus was the god of this and then in viking culture you know odin was a god of this and they can see that they're kind of similar and they're trying to codify stuff in a way that um, they're kind of trying to reverse world build to mean everything makes sense and religion doesn't make sense but religion is so hugely important and people really do believe it i mean there's all the stuff about human sacrifice and stuff in the kind of what's the religion that they have in so lost i didn't really i don't know where that came from it partly actually came simply from actually slightly weirdly from me watching a lot of bad fancy films when i was a child where you know you have the kind of they all really the, the kind of the priestess of the unknown powers who sacrifices people is such a stock troop in fantasy but i was really identified with her because she always looked and dressed more like me that kind of classic really really stereotype really 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 racist fantasy thing when you have the blonde goodie and you have the kind of racially more complicated wearing black usually with black hair and very red lips priestess who goes off and sacrifices people to the nameless gods and blah i was identified with her but because i was always identifying her it wasn't like it wasn't actually like oh someone must be a really bad person it's like well she's clearly a really nice person she just like you know she's her religion's just she sacrifices these people you know kind of like you know, she's obviously really nice she just that's her job right you know kind of and that's just so that was normal and um i kind of wanted to write about that that to her it is normal into this culture it is normal and in fact of course for a lot of world history in a lot of places it was normal and there's almost a kind of it's very problematic when people start saying as soon as people start talking about all these human sacrifices something terrible and people then you start getting people start inevitably start getting this, this kind of really problematic stuff about start they start talking about the aztecs you can see them be like oh shit i've just said something racist because i've just suggested something wrong with the aztecs but then i'm going to try and make this better and worse at the same time by suggesting that there was nothing wrong with the aztecs but at the same time obviously you know we wouldn't do that now and you're like well people have done this it was just you know no one questioned it and actually that kind of notion of life and death and sacrificing people to keep the community going is kind of it's actually in a way that you know most communities who are 
in a fairly subsistence-based society where you are a couple of harvests, you're at best two harvests away from mass starvation, that kind of notion of life and death and people sacrificing themselves to the community or grabbing someone and scapegoating them and sacrificing them to the community is a thing that is incredibly raw and real. And it's, it's quite difficult for us to think now about how actually how incredibly at the mercy of things you don't understand most societies throughout history have always been it takes it takes one massive hurricane or it takes it takes russia against invading ukraine or whatever to make us suddenly realize how how weak and defenseless our lives are against stuff as a society and so yes yeah, so the religion of soul loss was very organic i mean there's a there's a bit the beginning in Empires of Dust, there's a bit in the course of Broken Knives where Orhan talks, thinks about how when he was a child, he always felt that, you know, the greatest thing you could possibly do was volunteer to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And obviously in a culture in which people are sacrificed because that keeps what keeps your society going, that is the greatest thing you can do is to volunteer to be sacrificed. And then he talks about how, and he talks, say this with this really proud, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to let myself be, I'm going to be sacrificed and I will be, that will be, you know, my death will make make our city stronger and better. And his parents are desperate, like, no, 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 well, kind of, that's wonderful, darling, but, and they can't say, but not you. But of course, that's what all of us would say. That's wonderful, darling, but not you. And it was just trying to kind of talk quite, and that, and then that's the, what I looking back was actually possibly the darkest bit I wrote in the whole trilogy in some ways. The wind's so lost when they have the plague and they end up killing, they're demanding that people are killed every night and they're demanding more and more blood because they're absolutely terrified and their society is collapsing and there's just mass death on the streets. And again, that's so common, that response where you push people and they don't behave rationally, they become more extreme. And I mean, God, we've both seen it, we've seen it politically in both England and in America, that kind of actually when things start going bad, people don't come back. They get more and more and more entrenched. They absolutely double down and they double down again. And the solutions that people are proposing aren't, in fact, well, we need a central, what we need right now is a centralist technocrat who's just going to, you know, calm everything down, you know, <laughs> sort out stuff like potholes in the roads and energy bills, and we can all just chill. It actually gets more and more entrenched and going more and more and more extreme positions. So that kind of death spiral of a society is historically documented and seemed just completely horrifyingly real to me. And I do kind of look back at those chapters and think, where the hell did some of that come from? Because that was just me. It was kind of, in a way, it's got no relevance to the main story, but it actually encapsulates the whole novel, about the whole series with people just kind of doubling down and doubling down and you're not able to get out of it. And that sense of trying to make, trying to make sense of the world by making the world more and more unpleasant and the notion that God is hungry and is devouring and that death and Steve Erickson writes about this a lot that kind of the gods that these kind of gods that are devouring people and that they're demanding your annihilation 
I mean, partly, I guess it's it's people like me and him who've been lucky enough to grow up in a very irreligious society responding to that kind of sense of an awareness that even if a religion isn't making that kind of absolute blood demand, a lot of religions are making that kind of that notion of ab that notion that's very problematic to people in modern kind of Western culture about the abnegation of the self and that notion that the that if you've been brought up to have a very sense of you know the individual self and your own individual achievements, that notion, the notion of becoming kind of a monk or a hermit or that kind of notion of becoming a religious recluse or becoming part of giving you know becoming losing your ident individual identity to become a, a servant of god is just chilling anyway and then taking that to its extreme as well that kind of but yeah the religion was very organic it didn't i didn't think about it i didn't write it i always worry there isn't enough religion in the books in fact certainly when i read people like ericsson and baker i'm like oh i didn't Develop it enough. I didn't kind of make sense of it enough, but but then you go from that to the people in like the people in place like the White House. So Marith doesn't have a religion. He never talks about. It. He talks about the gods in this kind of vague, the same way that I swear all the time. You're saying God, and and I'm completely atheist, but I just use God as a swear word because we all do. But Marith, Marith kind of lives in a world like that. But then he lives in a world that just kind of haunted by memories and by kind of fears and by this kind of new there's his 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 is a much more numinous world than Orhan. So Orhan lives in a city where you have a temple and you have a very strictly ordered religion. You have a pre you have priestess you have a priestess and you kind of understand it. And it's a horrible, horrible, totally it's a very, very demanding, oppressive religion. But it's only there when he's in the temple. He doesn't it's not in the the god is there in the temple, but it's not the city. The city doesn't. There's not a sense that the city is kind of god haunted. Whereas Marith's world is there's no god. He doesn't have a theology. He doesn't talk about worshiping. He doesn't talk about prayer. He doesn't think about the gods in that way. But he lives in a world where there's kind of numinousness in the landscape, where the landscape around him is kind of haunted and almost alive and that was quite important that I didn't think about it plan it but that that contrast between Orhan having a much more kind of modern organized religious sense of the world and Marath having a very kind of just the world itself is somehow alive was something that was the world the kind of like the mountains are alive the, the marshes are alive the, the sea is alive and it's just kind of but he can't really articulate it and then Tobias is just complete cynic about everything. <laughs> they were kind of different voices that I didn't plan, but were obviously sort of written like that to have these different perspectives on the whole thing. It's funny when you mentioned that, Anna, because I know for me as a reader, uh, from my perspective, when it came specifically to religion, I found that Merit himself was like a god, was yeah. this um, combination between, funny you mentioned Alexander the Great, that was one of the immediate comparisons that, that I found almost like a, a combination between Alexander the Great, almost like an antichrist type figure, you know, because of his 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 magical abilities, you know, especially initially with controlling dragons. Like so um I I found that that for for me 
the religious aspect specifically with Merith was his belief in his own abilities and his bloodline and his destiny and that he was like a godlike figure, um, you know, in terms of, of the religious aspect um, with him. But but I, I want to quickly touch back on what um, what you you we talked about earlier about with your battle scenes and that was not specifically battle scenes themselves but you mentioned this this feeling of you know um, disorientation and again I thought they were extremely well done and very unique uh, the way way you did them and um, I felt that disorientation was a major theme for me in the entire book books because all of the characters certain certain degrees were disoriented you know they were always not really quite understanding perhaps perhaps how they got where they were uh, where they were going um in some cases not all cases and 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 how the world around them was going to evolve in the near future because everything seemed just so chaotic all the time right and and you know even though in some ways they had this um these almost these you could see almost these preordained paths like you know um you know and, and especially when when i consider um you know someone uh like merit like you know although exiled and 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 cast aside you know he 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 felt that he was still going to rise above that in the end and 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 rule right and then lead and lead and lead so i think that but still feeling disoriented about everything else in his in his world, right? And I think that that's feeling I had this sense of being disoriented, and that the characters were disoriented, like, and that everybody uh, was unsure about where things were going. While it was all, it was a really unique contradiction. They seemed so unsure about things, and yet so sure about things, like in terms of their their destinies and, and the world around them. It was really. You know, Orhan. You know, he 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 has this plan. He's going to right the wrongs and stop the the rod, and you know, do all these things. But yet, he's so worried about his family being burned. You know, it, you know everything he he knows um, being destroyed, and and it just um, I just felt these. I felt the characters were in this state of constant disorientation. Like Thalia, she she her her destiny is she knows either one two things going to happen. She's going to uh, live and die as a high priestess, and then, you know, hope in her mind when she dies, hopefully someone else is identified as as high priestess, or her her successor will kill her, um, you know, at some point during her life. And and you know, so in some ways things are, are very laid out, but yet still very disorienting because obviously the things that she does, the sacrifices she has to make, the, the human sacrifice I'm, I'm talking about, like it's disorienting and it's causing her all this angst and that's what causes her to flee um you know the situation so i i i read the book with the books with the sense of everything's very chaotic for the characters right so yeah no that was i guess that's partly from my own constant questioning of things i'm kind of a lot of orhan in fact comes from so um i'm a civil servant i work for the uk central government and that sense of terror about how <laughs> the, 
no government has a clue what it's doing and that kind of I mean I've had arguments with people who've talked about you know people who talk about kind of the great plan that the deep American state has for the world and they talk about you know the whole plan that the America all that conspiracy stuff about you know the, the Americans have had plans for how they're going to you know they know exactly what they're doing in the Middle East and your government you know and that's actually worse. It would make me feel so much happier if Washington, all of what's going on, you know, the complete clusterfuck that is the Middle East, if Washington actually had a long-term plan, even if that long-term plan was, you know, the, the mass, you know, all the wars that are breaking out there, all the instability there, if they had someone, someone in Washington has some plan for all that stuff, that would kind of make me feel a lot better. But there is no plan. I'm really quite certain of that. Having worked in government myself, so UK government, even at a really junior level, no one has a clue what they're doing. And that, and it's really, you know, and that the terror of, on the one hand, people who maybe think they're absolutely right. I mean, I don't, it's kind of quite terrifying that notion that, you know, did people, when people, that when people, when the second Iraq war happened and there seemed to be that idea, it would all be fine. And so everyone like, oh, yeah, no, we'll just sort it, you know, we'll just. The sheer terror you feel that maybe people actually did believe that that would just they had their plan would work, and yet the yearning also terror terror that they were just like well I'm a clue, you know you read actually you read some really frightening stuff like just a little stuff about things like um if you read stuff about what was going on in the control room at Chernobyl leading up to Chernobyl blowing off for people like that kind of that there's various debates about whether they knew exactly they thought they knew exactly what they were doing and it went wrong. Or whether they were just standing there like, I don't know, just, just, well, maybe if we just press this button, it'll be all right. Oh, shit, it's not all right. Like, well, you press the other button. And that kind of fear and that. So Orhan is really kind of writing that. He has that kind of political sense of the politicians who have a plan. But at the same time, there's a voice in the back of their head like, yeah, you think, you think, you think it's not just going to end up as bad as everyone else's plan has always ended up. But. That sense of disorientation, yeah, it's also, so Marith, I mean, it's really interesting you're saying about Marith as Alexander the Great, because, yeah, that was, so Achilles and Alexander the Great are two, two people I've read about since I was a child. They're two figures who've absolutely obsessed me. And yet both of them, they're, they're actually kind of, I mean, Achilles, the whole point of the Iliad is he, this thing happens that he did not expect to happen, that is catastrophic. He he has no, he, there's that awful scene where it's just sort of, you know, the wonderful scene where he's sort of sitting quite happily, assuming that everything's all right, that Patroclus is out there in his armour and his honour's been saved and everything's fine. And then he's come and he's given this message that he can't even begin to understand that because of him, the man, the person he loves most in the world is dead. And that sort of that flip of that total disorientation and the way you, and then you, you can see because you know the story you can see the whole thing building up to this point and you desperately want to like no don't 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 you know just leave it you know this this woman isn't worth it you know don't don't make this fast right now because this is what's going to happen no no this is worth it and that and of course he can't see it and then Alexander's really interesting because there's a lot of stuff about for one that kind of notion of Alexander's somehow having the sense of himself as having a destiny that somehow he will. A lot of the historical novels about Alexander, just the assumption is always that he knows exactly what he's doing. Or he just has this absolute confidence. There's this famous story that he supposedly slept in late 
the morning of, I can't remember which battle it is now, I can't remember whether it's Gargamel or Orissus, but he sleeps in late because he's just so confident that everything will be fine. He just has a really nice night's sleep and has to be woken up the next morning from this lovely restful sleep, which is always, I mean, it's just absolutely chilling, the thought that, you know, you've got tens of thousands of people's lives in your hands and just like, and you're just having this nice sleep without any sense of anxiety about what could happen. But it's always always presented as this kind of figure who's always known somehow. And of course, the stories, because of the way Greek history works, talking about omens and things, lots of stuff is made up to show that he always knew and that everyone around him had always known. So Marath's kind of writing that, me writing that from this kind of, is he a god? Is all this preordained? Has he convinced other people? Has he convinced himself it's preordained? Are other people convinced it's preordained and so have kind of taken him along with him? He's been brought up. There's little bits where I talk, a, sort of hint at his parents and, you know, what. There's obviously some stuff that I don't really go into, but there's obviously stuff in his childhood where people respond to him in a complicated way. There's little, sort of little hints about how his father and his stepmother respond to him and see him that he's somehow he's different or there's something about him but what does that mean and what and that sense is he want just you know has he just been brought up absolutely entitled so then he makes his life becomes goes catastrophically wrong but does he just have that kind of arsehole sense that he's he deserves something wonderful and whatever you know somehow he'll get something wonderful and then there's all kinds of possibilities. I mean, he, if he joined up with Tobias and they'd been on a slightly different mission, could he just spend the rest of his life as a foot soldier following orders with this community around him, this man who in some way seems to have some kind of father-son relationship with him, a group of other young men around him? Could he have just you know, spent the rest of his life in total anonymity, just a, so a low-ranking mercenary with a community around him where he has some kind of sense of happiness, he has people he feels some kind of relation, emotional relationship to, and he's taking orders. And actually, I kind of get the thought, he's got the feeling he quite likes taking orders. He's got someone else telling him what to do, and he just kind of wanders around. Or there's another possibility. There's that moment where he's with Thalia in the desert, and they've got all this money, and they could just, you know, go and live. They've got enough money to live. And actually, maybe they could just be really happy. Just they could have children. They could just live, find someone to live. But then is it external circumstances that force this on him? Or he could just be he could be king of one at one place and you know have a and be king, fulfill all this kind of destiny for being the heir to the throne. But somehow it's forced on him to carry on and take and conquer other places. And it's all these questions about, you know, could he have been happier? Would some would he have felt this entitled sense? Would he have been happy with Thalia just living a quiet little life? Or would he have felt some entitled sense that actually deserved something more? Would he have been happy just being king of the White Islands? Or would he have felt so the again the so the stuff at in the stuff in um, 
the house of sacrifice about the scene that's really important to me in the beginning of that is the scene with where he disbands the army because they've done it they've conquered you know they've conquered his ancient they captured his ancient kingdom they've avenged all the wrongs that were done on his ancestors he's going to disband the army and this actually happens to alexander he disbands the army when he's re he well he it's happened the opposite happens to alexander alexander wanted to go on he wants to reach the far ocean he wants to quite just conquered a little bit of India. He wants to go on. And clearly he just wants to go on and on and on and on. And his troops said, stop. And that was what broke him. That was what set, clearly what set off the kind of catastrophic series of events that led to Alexander dying, that he's just sort of broken by his troops, not wanting them to just go on. Otherwise he'd have tried to conquer India. Then he'd presumably have tried to conquer China. Then he'd presumably have discovered he could take a ship and try and conquer Japan. And then... Ugh. presumably they're like well we'll make some really big ships as i've tried to kind of conquer somewhere else gone the other way tried to conquer rome tried to conquer western europe tried to conquer africa and that but marath there's a scene in because originally it was just this kind of inevitable sense of why does he want to conquer the world well because he does because that's what they do that's what world conquerors do they always just want to conquer the next place but actually that kind of sense where he just he disbands the army they've done what he's asked them to do they they've done the kind of the me doing a bit of a kind of nasty flip of if marith is kind of an anti-aragorn they've kind of you know they've taken back they've defeated the, they've kind of taken back out he's he's king in minas tirith kind of you know it's hey we're all done which was also a riff on that you know it was riffing on that deliberately he is reclaiming his ancient birthright from which his rightful line has been driven out which is very unproblematic presents a lot a lot of fantasy so yeah he is we end the houses we end the tower of living and dying with him in what is actually based quite closely on a description of Minas Tirith and he's been crowned king of Minas Tirith and it's all wonderful you know the, everything is fulfilled and then at the beginning of the house of sacrifice he dismisses the army and the army kind of points out they don't want to be dismissed because they don't <laughs> they don't want to stop earning their wages and they don't want to stop having making you know, they've, had, they've had a really great time they've earned more money they got more power and they don't want it to stop they don't want to go back to just having really shit lives as peasants and they're the ones that force and he they're the kind of the ones that force him to go on and he can say it wasn't me they said that they wanted to go on fighting and they presumably have smashed up the city if I hadn't agreed to let them carry on fighting. But then you also want to say, well, would they? Would they not have done what armies often do, which is kind of, or kind of what happened at the capital, where they kind of, you know, smashed up some people, a couple of people died, it wouldn't have been very nice, but then they probably just have gone home, actually, and gone back to being peasants, because actually they probably wouldn't have, you know, like give up, like, we want to go and conquer another city and we are going to do something. You know, what, what were they going to do, honestly, if he disbanded the army? What, what were they actually going to do? Smash up the city a bit and then go home. So it's a... Is it his excuse? Does he just, you know, actually, does he want to go on? Does he want to carry on? And he's just using that as an excuse because he could have sent them home if he'd just been a bit stronger. And that... Constantly it's there, that kind of what why actually are you doing this? What, you don't really know why you're doing this, or you don't want to admit why you're doing this, or kind of, and that also was quite important, also seemed quite a thing that, 
a very normal thing. I mean, the interesting thing with fantasy is often it just ends. So, I mean, the Lord of the Rings kind of ends. There's Aragorn, he's king. I know there's a trying a bit, sort of talking talks a bit about what happens afterwards. But you get this kind of, it's all ended. And then it's all just going to be all right. And time's just going to kind of stop or something. And that kind of, well, it's not all going to end, is it? Something, it's not, it's not as simple as that. It's never as simple as that. And that, I wanted to kind of talk about that, that kind of explore that, that kind of, and that sense of choice is not, in some ways, that really pessimistic, every choice you make is always wrong, because history often teaches us that every choice people make in a crisis usually is wrong. It's that kind of, um, very few times can you point to someone's, to some kind of, you know, there was a massive crisis, a country was invaded, or, you know, there was a massive famine, or there was a massive economic collapse or something. And the leadership put together a really, really brilliant five-point plan which solved everything and everything was great again within five years because it really never, ever seems to happen like that. And But yeah, and that sense of it's always the wrong decision. People always make the wrong decision. And yet kind of... I didn't want to be as pessimistic as people just always make the right, wrong decision, but somehow maybe there is no right decision. Or maybe there is no... In a way, maybe most people's lives just are a bit shit. <laughs> oh, kind of, history generally suggests things generally are a bit rubbish. I don't know. But that, yeah, that sense of not absolutely knowing what you're doing, but also not knowing what you're doing was quite, I'm rambling completely here, but that kind of, it was a lot of playing around with that sense of the chosen one's destiny and that sense of the chosen one has, has destiny. Merith is he is quite written to be a response to be Black Aragorn in the same way that Baker is clearly writing in that kind of way as well, that, you know, everyone, everyone really does kind of have this sense that this, in Baker, that this person is going to save them. And there's that really strong kind of, he, much more than I am, he's really writing a kind of really, he's deliberately very, very closely engaging with the Trezmond motif in a kind of, I'm showing, showing that kind of, everyone following and absolutely I'm really kind of uncritically thinking this is this is the chosen one who's going to lead us to salvation whilst yeah it is always more ambiguous with Merith but it is that really kind of he is deliberately playing with that I don't know if anyone's ever noticed but the um where he's sort of the the, the ending of uh, the Tower of Living and Dying is really really closely based on uh, Aragorn's entry, well, the entry of the law, the great lords of Gondor into Minas Tirith. I really, really, I read that scene and reread that, that's, that speech. It's the speech that Boromir makes about the return of the lords of Gondor to Minas Tirith, and he makes it to Aragorn. And of course, you're supposed, it's you see in that, and Aragorn's return as the king, and the kind of the, the final description of Marath's entry, Marath, the the big final description of the city at the end when Marath's rebuilt his city. It is essentially a description of Minas Tirith. And it is this moment where Marath is, he is the returned king, he is Aragorn. But it's always questioning and kind of, you know, what all these people see him as Aragorn and what the kind of complexity of that and the complexity of people following and the kind of his total assurance, but also his total lack of, everyone believes in him, that he knows what he's doing. He desperately wants to know, think he believes what he's doing, but he doesn't. 
it's most of and most of us have that but it's that kind of yeah taking that to another level again i mean i i really do appreciate you describing merith in this sort of ambiguous way because reading through the trilogy i I w until the very end, I wasn't really sure how to feel about him. Like, I, w I wasn't sure if I should feel sorry for him, that he's so weak that he cannot defy what seems to be his destiny or this momentum of death and destruction that somehow happened to exist around him. Mm -hmm. Or should I hate him? Because he, like, he also seems to be enjoying the... Mm -hmm the destruction and, and the death that he brings to people. He like, he does enjoy the killing. So I, it's such a, he evokes such conflicting feelings in me. Um, so I really oh. appreciate, like, I really appreciate you saying that it's, it's, it's meant to be ambiguous that there's yeah. not like one way to feel about him. See, cause I absolutely adore him. I love him to pieces. I will always say this to people. He is, and I think part of the, Part of the people do say, or when people say to me, he seems a very fully realised character, or he seems, people do say, oh, he has this thing. I'm like, yeah, that's because I love him more than anyone else in the universe. That's because, you know, I wrote him as absolutely as just, I did write him with a kind of like, absolute just love and lust for him. I just kind of, he is the kind of man of my dreams. And because of, and yeah, so I really... But I also know he is absolutely loathsome. He is absolutely kind of, he is appalling. He's grotesque. He is weak. Yes, he is really weak. There's, he, there are little things like, there's a little bit where he's, where, there's a bit where he's, oh, he's in bed with Thalia and they're staying in the inn, um, so in the desert and he's in bed with Thalia. And then the rate is knocking on the door and he sort of says, oh, we, we need to get up now. So he's in this, you know, he's in bed with this stunningly, amazingly beautiful naked woman that he's absolutely besotted with. And there's this, 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 this nobody chap is knocking on the door and he's like, oh, we need to get up. We must get up now because he's used to, he is weak. He's used to, you know, he's always had people telling him what to do. And actually a lot of kind of, the reason Prince Harry left the royal family is clearly actually because he's been, he's got fed up with spending his whole life being told what to do. Because actually most people, you know, he's got all this, he's, his whole life has been other people telling him what to do and controlling him. And he is really weak. And you get the feeling often he's going along with kind of, he's going along with stuff and also trying to sh go one better. He is often like the kind of, like the bully's mess mate, who then is even worse to kind of try and get the bully's favour. And he is, yeah, and he does. But also I suspect he enjoys killing because most people probably do. He's very good at it. And I suspect most people, if you put them in that situation where they're very good at it and they can kill everyone in the room, they really enjoy doing it. <laughs> because that that ultimate power, that kind of most people want power and enjoy exerting power. And a lot of people enjoy exerting power in very cruel ways. And I suspect that enjoyment of being able to order what being on the kind of you know on the one hand being in a room and knowing you can probably kill everyone else in the room is an intense enjoyable experience but also that more distance experience of knowing you can give the order and they will and your soldiers will annihilate the city is an intense enjoyable experience because it is more 
power than most of us can ever begin to imagine. And it is kind of, it is just ultimate power and it probably is intensely enjoyable and it probably would take quite a strong will to be in that position and to say, no, I don't want to do that. But yeah, there's this, that kind of sense of him and also that sense of him as being vulnerable, that he's lashing out. He is still a child. People talk, Tobias certainly talks quite a lot about how young he is and that he is a kind of child lashing out to try and get someone to say it's all right or say he can stop or say he's a good person or say he's, you know, or say, oh, you're so wonderful. And you kind of, that's kind of what he wants. I mean, I, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff I could probably, he's drawn from a really personal place in me, I think, and the really negative parts of me. And yeah, there's all kinds of layers of him being deeply unhappy and really pitiable, but also just grotesque and just kind of absolutely monstrous. And his, his ending was really difficult for me because I didn't want him to die. My mum's never forgiven me that I kill him. <laughs> she really, she was convinced right up until the last pages that somehow he and Thalia would go away and somehow he somehow they'd make it all work and they'd be happy somehow and they'd somehow ride off into the sunset together. And I really, really, really wanted that to happen. I really, really wanted them to just be able to go away together and live together quietly somewhere. But in the end, I just couldn't do it because he couldn't, he couldn't do that. He couldn't have just gone away, even though it's all he really, he says again and again and again and again. And I think I believe him that it's all he wants, but he can't at the same time. And that you do feel really sad for him that he can't, he can't get that. It's like, it's kind of actually like, I remember seeing, um, I remember seeing something about Trump and he was standing there and you're like, man, you've got, supposedly you've got more money than most people on this planet have ever had you've got a fucking you know you've got a gold lift you've got a room that's like you know you've got this like massive gold house with a gold lift you've got a wife who is frankly one of the most stunningly beautiful women in the entire planet you've got really really attractive children all of whom seem to be in really good health what are you so fucking unhappy about you know, why are you acting as like this petulant you know oh i want more you've got you know you've got the hottest wife in the world really healthy family and loads of cash you know just <laughs> what more is there in life what can you want and yet somehow that's not enough and that that really it's just this is actually really pitiful pitiable that kind of you know why can't you just see how incredibly lucky you are and stop whining and that yeah i really went it but it is really sad as well that kind of sense of kind of yeah i wanted him to be pitiable or at least i i didn't consciously want him to be pitiable but yeah he is he is pitiful yeah i wouldn't have thought i would hear you comparing mary to donald trump but i oh, guess no, no, no. i mean so um i do kind of see him in some ways like that because it is that kind of like what do you want? I mean, you'd be standing, you could be standing there, a, you know, intergalactic ruler of the entire universe with everybody, you know, like 
you are we are not worthy we are not worthy and you still wouldn't be enough somehow like and that is just so I really feel sorry for Donald Trump in some ways because it's like what would ever take it for you to feel one moment of happiness about anything and that's really sad that you can't you know <laughs> you're never going to feel happiness about anything but actually I mean um Thalia's speech is Thalia's big speech at the beginning of the house of sacrifice is based on me thinking really closely about it's actually based on me thinking about Melania Trump and also about um, Grace Mugabe, Mugabe's second wife. Um, but it's kind of, I sort of jokingly refer to Thalia a bit as my defence of Melania Trump, because I did get... There was some really interesting stuff about... what There was all that stuff about Melania Blink if you need help and things. It's like, why does she need help? She's married to this really rich guy. I mean, you know, there's me. I've got this really crappy... Really, I have to get up really early in the morning to commute into this really boring job and I've got to juggle childcare and I've got to juggle you know managing to pay the mortgage and the bills and like what's for my pet children like what's for dinner and you know can we do this can we do that and ah, you know she doesn't have any of that what do you mean blink if you need help malaria she's got an amazing life <laughs> okay she's married to Donald Trump but you know the, what she gets is vast piles of cash and red carpets and designer dresses and no, no stress it's that kind of, um, but then and then was also comparing that to a woman called Grace Mugabe, who is the second wife, was the second wife of Robert Mugabe, who was similarly a kind of very beautiful young woman who was his trophy wife. But the kind of, there was some very explicit, no one said, blink if you need help, Grace. It was very much, you know, she... It was all her fault that Robert Mugabe became what he was towards the end of his life. If he, he was a monster, it was partly because he was married to this young woman who just wanted to take all Zimbabwe's money and spend it going shopping. And, you know, she he went from being this great political figure who had all this kind of, you know, he went from being this important figure in terms of kind of African liberation and African and independence and African colonial states to being this kind of presumably his wife was just kind of like you know telling him to go and rip money out of the treasury because she wants to go shopping was basically the narrative and the sheer level of racism where Melania Trump was being treated as this kind of you know clearly she must she's this abused wife clearly you know she must be she's trapped she obviously didn't know one hand you're like well she or, as if somehow she didn't know what she was doing that somehow you know she was so trapped in this marriage Compared to Grace Mugabe, he was just being vilified as this kind of monstrous, just using her beauty to wrap this older man around her finger and so she could destroy this country for her own financial gain. It was so obvious a comparison. But also that kind of wanting to look at, thinking about both of them as just people, women, young women, who made possibly choices they might regret. But on the other hand, <laughs> if you said to a lot of women... <laughs> Would you like to marry, you know, would you put up with being married to Donald Trump to make the stress of your life go away? I think a lot of people probably say, yeah, actually. <laughs> kind of, you know, that kind of, so I wanted to make her have that speech about, well, I chose this, you know, and actually I'm really happy like this and I'm not a victim. It's not just, and again, people kind of saying, oh, she's mooning about him, you know, she's the love, she's the conventional love interest, just mooning away over Marith just because he's good looking. Like, yeah, she does talk very frankly about the fact he's stunningly good looking and she really enjoys that. But there are really logical reasons why she might have chosen that and that life and she's talking about them. 
and yeah, so yeah, in a kind of way, a strange kind of way, she kind of is Melania Trump. <laughs> well, kind of in a very complicated way, which has probably made you hate her now, but but yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk about what it might actually be like to be the kind of trophy wife of someone like that and how it might be a bit more complicated than people seem to think either way. I mean, I, I really enjoy that because in, in fantasy, you often get female characters who don't have a lot of agency. And I felt like this was, <laughs> felt like it was written to be a sort of a subversion of that where she she does start out as the, the princess in distress, but then she, she kind of has to explain to like other people and other people are questioning her agency and why she's with Mary or if she's, if it's just because she's so madly in love that she cannot make decisions for herself. Um, and she kind of has to defend herself and explain to other people that it is a decision she's made and she could leave if she wanted to. And she has mm -hmm. like, she has her own power and, um, and she does walk away at the at the very end, um, and like yeah, she does agency, but she she has agency, but also she doesn't necessarily make decisions that pe other people approve of, which complicates that further, which I thought was really interesting and made her a very complicated character for me to, to root for, but very interesting one to read about. Yeah, so she start. I mean, she does start off as the traditional love interest, simply because I've read most of the no the novels I read. Most of are probably very traditional epic fantasy, or kind of either sort of swords and sorcery fantasy, or kind of swords and sandals historical stuff, where the women are do have very little agency. The woman is usually the love interest, and that kind of. I guess part of me, there is that kind of unquestioning, she just goes along with it, because she always does. You think about the kind of the weird, if you actually I think about the weirdness of a James Bond film, for example, you're in, you're in a bar, this guy's this very attractive guy starts chatting to you, and you do think he's extremely hot, and he buys you a drink, and you know, yeah, you probably would go back to his place and have fantastic sex with him. But then, the, you know, the bar blows up, and next minute you're in a helicopter over Afghanistan, <laughs> helping him defuse a nuclear bomb, because... It just kind of seemed it just sort of happened like that. It just seemed kind of at no point could you just kind of say, well, actually, you know, yeah, you're hot and I really would have quite liked to have sex with you, but I'm just going to go home now. And that that kind of love interest story where she doesn't quite somehow it's just no one ever questions the kind of why didn't you just leave was part of her story. And part, it was partly just because it. It never is questioned, so she just started. She did, I suppose, to start being with them because it being sort of following joining Marith and Tobias because that's what the woman in those kind of novels always does but yeah it was that kind of yeah why is she doing this what what's going on they kind of I actually read a lot of the other kind of books I read a lot of are actually the sort of um people like Philippa Gregory the kind of women in a man's world court novels which I love and I think Philippa Gregory's stuff Bam Berlin is way better than Hilary Mantel because she actually talks about women having agency not in terms of she's not doing the kind of I'm going to give you the one masculine woman in a male world sort of so in things like Game of Thrones you have Brienne of Tarth as you know the one the one woman who's going to go around being a man she Philippa Gregory isn't about that she's about these are women who are trained to be you know all they're ever going to be is a wife or a mistress they are just the love interest 
but what are they doing? What do they feel? What's going on with them? You know, they must have, they don't have agency in the way the men around them do, but they, they're real living autonomous people. They're not actually just, there's reasons why they're doing this stuff. Even if the reasons are things like, well, because, you know, because my father told me to do it or, you know, because something bad will happen to me if I don't. There's still, you know, there's stuff going on. They are living people. And I wanted to kind of really talk about that with Thalia, that, yeah, she's not, she is the very conventional love interest, but she's also talking about it in her own terms. And, in fact, if you look really closely, she never says she loves Marith. She talks a lot about the fact she desires him and that he's extremely good-looking, and there's a lot of stuff she talks about how she gets a lot of pleasure from him. But she never actually says she loves him. There's one little bit where Marith says that she, Marith, from Marith has a scene where he remembers the fact she told, she told him she loves him when they're having sex. And that's actually written just after, so there's a little scene we're just after Marath has first really shown what he is. So it's um, somewhere in the house of, in the uh, Tower of Living and Dying. He's just destroyed the big, he's just destroyed the whole of the Ifish army and he's just killed all his family, killed everyone, all the Ross members of his family. And he's just actually let loose this first kind of total act of destruction. And that's the one time. So he remembers the first night that they then have that then together after they've killed after Marith has actually just ordered the annihilation of a city for the first time and he remembers Thalia saying that she loves him while they're having sex and that as I wanted to rot that to be for me that's her saying she loves him because she's at that point well that's the only thing she can do what's she going to do say oh my, my bad <laughs> kind of you told me you'd destroy this, you know, you told me you'd lay out all the wealth of this kingdom at my feet, you know, you told me you'd make me queen of this kingdom, you know, you've slaughtered everybody here, you've done all these terrible things, and now kind of like, actually, like, whoops, I'm, I think I might just leave now. I mean, she, you know, she can't do that. I was sort of, because, you know, she, what, she, she can't walk away at that point. She's, you know, that she's invested so much. And all she can do is say she loves say to him, I love you. Because what else is she gonna do? Say, actually, you know, I I've realised you're not a very nice person and um I'm just gonna leave now and just pretend this stuff never happened. Just kind of you know, just go and live quietly somewhere and pretend none of that ever happened, basically because you did it for me, kind of or you say you did it for me. And but other than that, she never actually says to him, she never actually says in her own point of view that she loves him. And that is really important to me that she never... He says he loves her all the time. He talks about her obsessively all the time. He does... I do worry that people... I did worry quite a lot that people would say I'm exoticising her as black because he exoticises her and fetishizes her. He does... You know, he... She is... I didn't mean that for me. I meant that for him. He does see her as this kind of extraordinary he vests a lot in her he does he loves her in a really strange like creepy way i think <laughs> he they don't have kind of a happy marriage in the same way that my parents have a happy marriage certainly he 
does see him as this kind of strange exotic thing that he's resting a lot of that he has some kind of he can't quite understand he's never going to understand he does exoticize her he does fetishize her but she what she feels about him is always slightly more ambiguous what she feels about her position is always slightly more ambiguous and that was really intentional and important as well that kind of it's kind of yeah it was kind of that was all their relationship between them is much more complicated and actually who is manipulating who inside at some points is slightly unclear and who kind of some people have suggested said oh you know she's just kind of you know she's you know he's this terrible monstrous person so presumably she can't leave him because he'll kill him he'll kill her or something but actually she's the one who nearly tries to kill him it's all kind of what actually is going on in that relationship and who is afraid of who is more complicated than kind of and more difficult than kind of yeah and it was written to be like that i think i thought about them all the time they were living with me those two more than they're those the those the four central characters lived in my life more than my own family i think when i was writing the books. yeah it was it was this was the first book where i really had to in a good way all the characters totally compelling in a way but i really had to look for somebody to do something really good like i really had to strain like i remember there's a there's a there's a part in um it was a quarter book knives yeah where um you know um um it was the representative it was it was the king's representative in the temple and and he's and the new high priestess the, the 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 fake new high priestess that's put in there and he's saying listen she's a child you can't expect her to just sacrifice to kill people so easily and Orin's like well she's got to do it you know that's that's her role like she's yeah. that and 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 the, the representative keeps saying you, she's a child right you can't expect a child of that age to to do this right and i remember that was the first time in the book so far i was like someone categorically came out and said something that was good right on the side of good because everything else was wrapped up in so much convoluted whether it was tobias caring for his men or whatever everything had like an ulterior motive or was was you know somewhat um like it was hard finding the altruism whatsoever in what people were doing and and i i remember thinking like this is the first time i've read four main characters that for the most part and i put this in my review if they all died the world, you know, the world probably probably be better off if they all just, you know, with the things that they've done and the horrific, you know, it's probably for the better. And 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 um, but at the same time, all of them were absolutely compelling and extremely well drawn. And I'm not I'm not crazy like that mm -hmm. was phenomenal. But yeah, it was the first time I actually had to look for is there anyone in this book that is doing something for purely, you know, pure, you know, motives that and and and, and I I I couldn't I I was hard. Press to find. So if the guy had said, "You just can't do this. She's a child. She can't do this." Then the whole, then yeah, that would have been good. That it, you know, if the, the little functionary had stepped in and said, "You cannot expect a child at this age to, to do this thing. I'm just going to stop it." But then the whole social structure exactly collapses. Exactly. So actually, I was I remember being in a really interesting discussion. Um, actually, it was about I was a no. Um, 
the Le Guin, Le Guin story about, I can't remember, it's those who walked away from, and I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the city. There's the city that they discover, the whole city, there's this perfect city, but the city is, run, the city is run on the pain and suffering of one child. So there's this perfect city where everyone's living this wonderful life, but at the heart of it, there's a child who is being, who is somehow being sort of tortured and in pain, and that's what keeps the city running perfectly. And the, the moral, and there's sort of, some people stay and others go. And there's this whole debate about kind of, and there's this whole, people attempting to find a moral sort of high ground for kind of, well, obviously the ones who leave are better off, even though they're going out into this world and they're going to have to suffer. And, you know, it's going to be, they're leaving Eden and they're going to suffer and it's going to be terrible. But there's, you know, like, well, that's the point, isn't it? You know, it's not what they're doing might be morally good, but their children and those are still going to have, you know, they're going to have to suffer now. Or it's a bit like then the trolley problem, you know, the thing about there's a train that you can see a train going down the track and the train's going to hit a bunch of children, but you can pull a lever to move on to another track. And if you move on to another track, it will only kill one child. So what do you do? And um, there's all this sort of, there's all these ethical attempts to kind of balance, well, does the sufferer, does it, or what's better? But the whole point is there's no good solution. In either, you know, there's the, in those scenarios, there is no good solution. Or they're kind of massive, so that there's all these, this sort of story, things like, you know, um, so uh, like the, this, whether or not to bomb, to drop the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that constant argument about, well, they didn't need to do it, but if they hadn't done it, then possibly the Japanese would have carried on fighting for longer, so more people would have died, more, more Americans and Japanese would have died. Or there's a whole lot of stuff about, there's this, I don't know enough to know whether it's actually true or not, but there's this constant thing that's often replayed about how people in Britain, um, Churchill knew, the British High Command knew about what was going on in the concentration camps, but if they bombed the concentration camps and the Germans would have known they'd broken some of their code, so they couldn't do that. And this whole kind of, and you get these people kind of saying, well, what, what, what is the best solution? You know, if I'd been the general at the time, would I have bombed Nagasaki and Hiroshima or would I have bombed the concentration camps? Well, you know, that kind of, and all the stuff about, there's all, again, this sort of stuff about Britain knew that the Japanese were about to bomb Pearl Harbor, but we didn't tell people, didn't tell your government, the American government, because we told the American government, then they'd be taking precautions and they might not enter the war and this whole kind of, and people are like, well, which, which is the right solution? The point is there is no right solution. There's the right solution from the point of view of the people on the ground, there's obviously, you know, if you were a perfectly innocent 14-year-old in Hiroshima, there's pretty obviously a right solution. What's the right solution if you're a mother whose last surviving son is an American GI who didn't die because Japan surrendered? That's a very different solution. You know, there is no right solution. There are only ever solutions for your country or your family or you personally. And that kind of that's one of the big things I wanted to talk about in the book that kind of what that and that's something that I think about a lot that kind of sense of you know what for you actually is a vast personal catastrophe for someone else is what saved them and that kind of or for you what seems to that kind of that sort of complete the fact that there is no you know, you can game it as many times as you like, but there's no solution. There's nothing, there's always going, to, 
people are always going to suffer is something that was quite important to sort of talk about in the book because that's I think that's when it becomes dehumanizing that kind of sense of it's really difficult because obviously some courses are just right it's really difficult to say that you know it's very difficult to say that there some wars were right you know it's very difficult to say that or the outcomes of some wars were right but then of course for the people who were killed or the family you know the the families around the people who were killed it's very difficult also not to say well it was a totally right thing you know a war of in wars of independence against the british empire were completely right but saying that to the face of a working class woman in london who's both of whose sons have been killed is a very difficult thing and it's that kind of just saying to someone well sadly you know you're on the wrong side you know <laughs> you're on the wrong side of a moral conflict doesn't actually stop the kind of personal pain of but my child is dead yeah, and yeah. that yeah it was something i really wanted to write about that kind of it's really difficult i it's really difficult not to kind of say well obviously some things are worth killing for but at the same time but you killed someone you know that kind of and that and i think that there's that always that danger of dehumanizing people so the kind of the danger I mean, the kind of classic thing that fantasy and science fiction always do, can do so easily that other genres can't do is have the enemy as orcs or as zombies or as robots or as dragons. And it's very easy, therefore, to sort of talk about, obviously, in The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is right. Obviously, they are, the, you know, they are good and we can't possibly have any other outcome. And obviously when they're fighting the orcs they've got to win but it's very easy it's much easier to talk about that when you're not having to deal with but the orcs are alive and the orcs are sentient and the orcs have family and yeah the orcs are bad but they're still living beings with people who love them and people that they love and they're just being wiped out and it it's trying to hold those two things at once to say yes it's incredibly morally important that this side wins because this side is morally better. But at the same time, the people that they are killing are still people. Yeah, and still, it still matters in some way. And it's really, that's something I really wanted to talk about. It's not, there's the kind of revisionist sort of quite sort of, you know, there's the quite sort of jokey, it's all just shades of gray or the kind of, you know, the kind of deliberately, messing around with the kind of just being cynical about everything and pulling everything down but i want to talk more complexly about sometimes sometimes it is worth killing there are things that is in this world that is worth killing and dying for but at the same time you need to remember that killing is has consequences even if it is for something that is absolutely morally right because again it, it there was a point, I guess, in the kind of, you know, the Cold War's ended. Sort of say to people sometimes, you know, the, maybe the late, the late 1990s, the early 2000s, there's that kind of sense the Cold War's ended. We've got some kind of progress towards civil rights. We've got some kind of process towards a recognition that, you know, at, 
explicit racism is bad. We've got some kind of progress towards the idea that explicit homophobia is bad. You know, there's that kind of sense in America and Western Europe that, okay, things certainly aren't perfect. There's still a lot, there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of sexism. Capitalism certainly isn't perfect. But there's a kind of sense that people are, things are getting a little better. And at that point, you do get people who are writing fantasy, which is very much the kind of, you know, everyone has a piece of clay, tearing everything down. There's no such thing as good and evil. It's all just kind of, you know, it's quite, it's quite light. It's quite quest. It's very cynical, which becomes increasingly problematic in the last 10, 15 years when you're like, oh shit, <laughs> we seem to have gone the other way again. Kind of, you know, that very cynical attitude of kind of, well, there's that kind of jokey. If you don't like my principles, I have others, or kind of, you know. I'm not going to die for this cause because I can just go around a corner and find another 16 causes. And that very jokey kind of attitude to things like the fight for civil rights and the fight for things that are really important. And now suddenly everyone can see that, okay, those things were really, really important because we didn't fight hard enough. And now look what happened. And that sense of, yeah, it is, some things are worth killing for, but at the same time, you need to remember that you're killing a Nazi they still have family, they still have people who love them and are going to be broken, you know, they're still a human being and that what you've done is a terrible thing, even though it's a morally justified, morally right, important thing, which is really horrible, really, really horrible thing to think about, but you need to think about that because otherwise you do just end up the other side of the, otherwise you do just end up back going back into a kind of, well, them lot are just, not human so it's fine to kill them which is obviously what has always justified racism and colonialism and imperialism and the worst you know the absolute the worst of brutality is the point where you're dehumanizing the other side and saying they're just evil and that the moral necessity comes in remembering those things and never thinking about and that yeah so which was made them such painful books to write because it is complicated. It is really horribly, horribly complicated. But exceptional books, though, and uh, oh, talks and, they and just, also just, they also, just shatter me. Yeah, but but you know, from our point as readers, exceptional. And and one thing really that stood out to me in what you said, and thinking about the books and about this the whole concept in general, just um, the fact that leadership specifically, and I read about a lot about this in my own work as well, is that. You know, good leadership can be at odds sometimes with good morality, and 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 the, the two of them aren't 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 mutually you know um, you know compatible uh, oftentimes, right? The decisions you make as a leader, um, as you, you know, as Anna so eloquently pointed out, you know, like okay, you're going to bomb and and you're going to bomb to to highly populated cities cities in in a country and, and destroy lots of people to prevent further deaths, you know, or or another nation from acquiring the same technology and then then wiping out even more people because you're going to use you're going to kill more discriminately than they will and you know all these moral you know quandaries and questions that you know we ask ourselves but i think um from from empires of dust one of the things i really took out and, and i'm not sure if 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 this was something that you were trying to to um to talk about and it was that you know um these complicated decisions and these these moral quandaries and these these dichotomies, you know, often exist because um, someone isn't 
ready, willing, able to step up and put a stop to it, perhaps by any means necessary, right? Someone's not willing to take that extreme measure to do X, right? And that when someone is, um, that's usually when, um, you know, well, it's going to go one way or another. Things could devolve even further, or perhaps you can actually um, change that course positively, despite the the, the collateral damage, right? Um, you know that that that. So basically, until someone says, you know, hey, you know, we, we need to, or hey, we need to stop the rot. We need to, you know, whether well intentioned, you know, misguided, regardless, you know, we need to do this to change this. And if we don't do this, then you know, we're in big trouble. And and that takes a certain amount of, of courage, um, you know, to do that. Again, whether misguided or not. And I think that's one thing I got out of out of the series is that, you know, for some people, until you step up and do this, stop Merith, do whatever, whatever the case may be, um, you know, if, you know, you need to have that that fortitude, moral fortitude and courage to if you want to change the course, you have to do something very extreme very drastic um you know that will have collateral damage yeah it's but, the collateral damage i think is the point that kind of it's that it is difficult it's kind of not it's kind of so yeah so i mean so the kind of very very pessimistic final page of the whole thing where you tobias is talking about this the, the civil war that's now broken out which was this kind of so yes yeah, so america's dead like well hey but then actually what we've got is now lots and lots of marriages. And that kind of, yeah, that sort of, at what point there's, at what point do you step in for what or what? Yeah, that kind of, it was, so I'm not sure if someone had stepped in and said, I'm going to, you know, if Landra and Tobias had succeeded in killing Marath, I'm not sure, I mean, what the consequences of that, that would have been. And that, yeah, I'm not sure if I'd agree with you. I don't know, but that's kind of, I mean, I couldn't say in a sense, I kind of, the books came out of such a deep place, the stuff, I mean, I didn't, a lot of the stuff wasn't consciously like, now I'm going to do this. It's just kind of, I guess, yeah, I mean, there is a constant desperate sense of, you know, if someone had not, I'd had more courage to do something, but then I don't know what, and you don't know what the consequences of that someone doing something that would have been, but that kind of, or that. So actually it's kind of like Maris' father, I wanted to show slightly sympathetically as he's stuck with his child and he's looking at it thinking like, my God, you know, this, this child is a monster. And that, again, it's sort of hinted at what Maris' parents and the family around him think, but that kind of, you know, what, this child is a monster. They're kind of, that kind of, um, yeah, that sort of sense of what, how they should have responded. I mean, would it have been better if they'd actually just killed him? His father had just killed him, you know, and that, which is again, you know, that a parent's kill a child is the most appalling, abhorrent act it's possible to think of. And yet, and it's difficult to imagine how, it's always treated, it's so often treated as very kind of, flippantly in fantasy and historical stuff that kind of you know the whole kind of game of thrones everybody's just killing their parents and their brothers and their siblings and the, their children all the time and it's just kind of and that i mean it's interesting actually the new thing i haven't actually been able to see house of the dragon but the way that actually it seems it's i've been 
I've reduced to reading the um, summaries, the plot summaries every week, but the way that actually, and massive spoiler, if you are not able to watch Purse of the Dragon or are waiting for it to come out on DVD or whatever, but um, the way it actually seems to be more, more complicated, so it's wonderfully more, more complicated than just he's now going to ruthlessly cast his daughter aside because actually she's his kid and he loves her the way most people do love their children. And it's a really kind of nice contrast the way in, you got the feeling that it was getting a bit ridiculous the way no one seemed to give any thought to the fact that this person is a close blood relative of mine I have grown up with and known since you know, might have some feelings slightly more complicated than I would just mercilessly, I would just thoughtlessly kill them like that because they're stepping in my way for one thing. But yeah, so I wanted to kind of talk about that a bit more in the books about, but you know, yeah, what if Maris, one of Maris' family had killed him? Is his brother, is his younger brother probably right to absolutely hate him and loathe him and think he's a real a sort of, you know, to be absolutely disgusting and dismissive to him and think they'd all be better off without him because he's probably right. <laughs> but it's complicated because they are family and they think most most of the time families, even toxic families, there is that it's a bit more complicated than just kind of well, we're all we're just gonna get rid of this person and then we'll be happy. And people do. People do often cut ties with people, but it's always more complicated. And yeah, I want that kind of but yeah, maybe it would all have been better if Barris' father had offed his son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just wonder specifically with, with that and, and also and again that scene at the end of Court Brook and Eyes when Thalia almost does it and yeah. and she just decides not to and gets into bed and goes to sleep. Yes. Like you know, yeah. that's that was my curiosity. Yeah, no, I re yeah, that was a really again, that was kind of part of me. I really kind of wanted in some ways it was I wanted her to kill him and then Okay, the big, the big, big thing is originally she was going to kill him and then he'd come back to life. And then John freaking Snow happened. And it was like, okay, that can't happen. So originally she, it was going to be much more powerful. She kills him and then he comes back to life. And there's something, you know, something, or it's all slightly ambiguous, you know, did she kill him? Did she bring him back to life? Did he, anyway, but originally, yeah, really originally he was supposed to kill her and then he, wow. he, she, was, sorry, she was supposed to kill him and then he comes back to life. And it's like somehow, you know, is it that he can't die or is it that she brought him back to life or because she obviously there's all this sort of stuff about her power, about what her, that she obviously does have some strange power and there's all this stuff about life and death. But then it's like, okay, that just can't happen because that's just going to look like I just ripped off Jon Snow. But actually it's much more interesting that way that she chooses not to do it, that it's not thrust on, it's not a thing that happens despite her, it's that she makes that conscious choice and she thinks about it several times later and it's clear that he thinks very strongly that she could have done it and that she's the only person that could do it and it's that i'm really really glad that i changed it and i had well that i had to change it because while it was a less dramatic ending in some ways i think people, that whole kind of oh she's just it would have she would have been seen as quite different from the first book if she'd done it, if she'd actually been able to carry it through. But at the same time, the fact she doesn't, because she cares about him and she has feelings for him and she pities him and she cares for him and she can't. It's almost like for her, it's a 
almost want to say it's a more heroic act for her that she decides not to. She decides to spare him because she decides she wants to hope that he can be better or she wants to think that they can have a life and that she chooses life rather than death at that point, having always killed people. She's always been told she kills people and that's what keeps the world going. She kills people and that's and that, that's her role is to keep things going. Her role is to make things good by killing people. And she makes this really important decision to try and make things good by sparing someone's life. And that's a really, sparing someone's life when you could kill them is a really, really profoundly important act. It's just possibly really unfortunate. <laughs> it's the one time it wasn't, you know, the, the morally best. It, again, it's that kind of, that, it's like that stupid thing people always talk about, you know, oh, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler. <laughs> and that's if, like, oh, that would just solve everything, wouldn't it? You know, all that would just be so, you know, kind of, as if kind of, one, no one at the time thought that, or kind of, <laughs> but that kind of, as if somehow that's some kind of really nice, kind of that, that's somehow almost claiming the moral high ground that from against people at the time that somehow sort of, and it just, it's such a pat thing. I don't know. It just sort of seems so, so yeah, that, that's it. No, no one else knows that. No one's ever known that before. <laughs> kind of, We're honored. Yes. I should sort of pretend, oh no, it was always intended like that. But yeah, no, it was originally, it was kind of, because originally it was, all my, originally that final scene was all my focus on him. And then I was forced to change my focus to her. And that was like, okay, wow, this is, because I remember staring at the last line, which was originally that she kills it. I'm just like, it's not going to work anymore. It's just not going to work anymore. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then I just suddenly rewrote it. So she put the knife down and she puts this knife down again and lies down and goes to sleep. It's like, it's like, oh my God, that is so much better and so much more important for both of them. And yeah, and that's just so much better and more important. So thank you, Jon Snow, having your stupid diamond come back to life thing. <laughs> Uh, and uh speaking of being broken that last uh the last big battle of uh in the in the trilogy what was that like to write for you really intense it did actually really physically and mentally knack me up because i um really really intense i really i was really living that i was really in that and that um it wasn't difficult to write at all it was just so intense it really just it did it wasn't that it was kind of i was struggling over it it was just i was really in it so it was it just it really fucked me up a bit because i was living it basically i kind of um so yeah so i haven't as people may have noticed i haven't really written much since and that was because i got so i was living in my head, I was like more a member of Marath's army than I think was anything else, which is not a good place to be. So I've now, so actually I've got a short story coming out fairly soon in the Grimdark magazine anthology, which is like the last, it's the last Empire of Dust story. It's my kind of, it's me killing off all of that inside me. And that's me writing about someone who is a soldier in the Mad's army for whom 
the way they're living by the the way that army is living by the end where they are just they're not human anymore they have become something so monstrous that's just normal so it's about a very kind of it's a it's a it's quite infinite. it's sort of so it, they're just people living in that army just being perfectly normal they are normal human beings having normal human relationships out there everything i said earlier about you know remembering always that they're these are people and they have relationships and one of them has a child but at the same time what they consider normal is monstrous because they're just and i was almost kind of living like that it just seemed to me quite normal i was just sort of writing this stuff and it was just it just kind of seemed normal <laughs> kind of and then I've got a novel coming out next year with the small press, which is called A Woman with a Sword, coming out with Luna Press. And that is, it's a kind of follow on. And it is about, it's, take, it's actually one of the characters that's in this short story, um, which is in the Grindelwald mythology. And it's, it's her life after the events of Empires of Dust. So it's her life during the kind of civil war there's this kind of terrible war successor wars afterwards that hinted at at the at the very end of the house of sacrifice but it's about her looking back on that that having been normal and also looking back on the fact that at that point you know she was like a god when i was writing those final battle scenes which are just so apocalyptic and massive and cataclysmic what's going on there and that sense that the the soldiers in that at that point are somehow they are not just they are more than human so it's her kind of dealing with being a perfectly normal peasant woman middle-aged woman who was part of that and that kind of it took me a long time i had to write these stories and really kind of actually deal with what I'd written <laughs> because it was really it did really fuck me up actually and I had to go through a kind of bit of a healing process because it did really it was kind of weird because I'd be writing that stuff and then my children would come home from school and I'd be like you know like cooking them dinner and reading to them and it was weird because it was kind of the whole book the whole thing seemed quite normal but yeah I do look back and think like Jesus <laughs> I don't quite know where I went with some of that stuff but kind of but yeah, no, I'm so I'm now trying to write some other stuff. It's it's kind of weird in some ways because it's like everyone's like, oh, you, those battle scenes are so amazing. But it's like, I want to keep writing those battle scenes but at the same time. It's like, I don't want to just write. I don't actually want it just to become a thing where everyone's like, oh, here we go. It's another one of Anna's free stream of consciousness changing tense battle scenes. And yeah, it's going to be good, but it's going to be like, you know, like those heavy metal bands that do the same you're like, yeah, it's another completely intense riff with someone screaming over the top. That was really great, but they've been doing it for the last two hours now, and now my head's aching, and I really don't want to end up like that. I want to do something, and so I'm trying to do something a bit different. Um, yeah, because I need to, I need to kind of get my, and yeah, and I want to do something a bit different as well. I've been done those battle scenes, I don't want to redo them. I'm not sure I could redo them, to make honest bits of them. I just think, Jesus. That first, the, the opening of the Court of Broken Knives and the final battle scene in the House of Sacrifice and various bits of those books, I do actually look back and think, like, well, I have no idea where that came from. I, 
whoa, I'm really, I do genuinely look at those and think like, whoa, I'm so proud of that I wrote that. I really feel like kind of, you're supposed to always say, oh, no, I think my writing's terrible. And obviously, um, there are lots of lots of bits where I just wince, you know, like, oh, God, I couldn't, I could never read them because it would just be painful. I'd just be like, no, that's wrong. No, no, I want to change that. No. But there are also bits I just think, like, Jesus, I'm really, really bloody proud of that. You know, I really, really am proud of that. <laughs> and I don't quite know where it came from, but God, I am proud, really, you know, really proud of that. And yeah, that some of those battle scenes are that particularly, I don't really know where they came from. And I am so incredibly proud of them. But I don't want to just re keep retreading them. You see what I mean? I don't want to just feel like, oh, I'm going to do another battle scene, but just from a slightly different perspective. So it's quite, it's kind of difficult now. I'm trying to do some other stuff. I am doing some other stuff. And that stuff is, I'm really pleased with it in a different way. But yeah, I kind of, I'll come back and do some more stuff like that later. But I need to have a bit of a break. <laughs> well, I mean, just, just. Just reading the, the last 100 pages of uh, The House of Sacrifice left me emotionally damaged, so I can't imagine how you felt after writing that. Well, it was better because I was living it. I mean, it wasn't. But that is kind of... Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that, because that's kind of what I'm... So, um, I remember reading the end of um, Philip Pullman, the His Dark Materials trilogy, and I cried, and I had to go out in the garden and walk around the garden for a little bit after that. And I've always really thank you for saying something similar. Well, it's thank like... you for making me cry so much. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the last scene. Like really, really good. That's like what's really, it's really slightly embarrassing. People always ask me what people, I remember during lockdown, someone said to me, what's the book that everyone needs to re read during lockdown? Like the most amazing, you know, what's the book that makes you feel like everything's worth it? And really unthinkingly, I said King Lear. And so I was like, what? Like, well, because... It makes me so happy, you know, in the human mind, you know, we've done so much crap and people, you know, I am so cynical and I do point out, you know, the human race, we've done so, we've fucked up so many things. And if we can manage to find a way to make, if we, you know, we've invented so many shit things and we've fucked up the environment and we are, would all appear to be fundamentally pretty xenophobic and racist and, you know, fundamentally not very nice. And yet someone wrote King Lear, you know, this chap who was just an ordinary English bloke wrote King Lear. That makes me feel like, you know, so, so happy that someone did that. And people are like, yeah, but it's such a bloody depressing play. It's like, yeah, but that's not the point. If a book so, makes me cry, that's usually a sign for me that it's, the yes. book is very good. Yes, and it's an achievement. <laughs> I mean, the, the last scene with Orhan and Dareth, I finished it then, though, like, I finished it around midnight and I cried for like two or three hours after that. Oh. It's so bleak and so heartbreaking. But not, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know. It's like, yeah, they are still together. They might. There's a chance. You don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know it sounds ridiculous. I'm so sorry I made you cry, but thank you as well. It's definitely one of those series where you, I remember reading the first chapter of Court of Marcus says, oh my God, like, what am I getting myself into? Like, what, what is, like, what is this? Like, this is, this is going to be pretty, 
Well, actually, that's pretty, pretty effed up. Perhaps you had a complete disaster in some ways with that on, um, I think it's on Goodreads, because for some reason, I don't know what happened, but when a lot of the, you know, there's, oh God, what's that? You know that site you can sign up to and you get sent a free review copy, free art. Or NetGalley. NetGalley, yeah. For some reason, something went round on NetGalley that, I think it's the title. I think it's because it's the something of some things, and it's by a woman. And there was some some someone had got some blurb about oh, it's got this mysterious young man in it. And so loads of people who re- loads of people who review YA romantic fantasy requested oh, no. it because they got oh. the idea. You know, oh, it's about this quite oh. broken young man with a dark secret, and it's oh. called the course of something something. It's by a woman. It's obviously you know he's going to be this. I mean, you can kind of see it. He's this beautiful, fucked-up young man, and you know, obviously, she's going to come and save him. And then, they, yeah. So then they open it, and they're like, "Just what the fuck?" <laughs> so I've got pages and pages of early reviews on Goodreads that are just. I requested this book from NetGalley, and it was sent to me. And just what? And it's just really awful, yeah, because it got it just it was so awful when it launched because it was just this kind of catastrophe with all these people. I thought this was a YA romance about a kind of tragically fucked up young man who gets healed. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, because yeah, that first and then they're confronted with that. And kind of <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah. Never call a book the court of something something is my big discovery, actually. That was such a mistake. I love the title. I absolutely love the title. But that's because I, but yeah, it was, <laughs> it was possibly the worst. I mean, it's really interesting because it is a bit like if I published it as A. Smith Spark or C. A. Smith, I couldn't probably actually A. Smith Spark doesn't work, but you know, if I published it as like my initials or kind of, you know, done the Robin Hobb thing and assumed a kind of more gender neutral pseudonym or something, and possibly it had a slightly different title, which didn't sound, have that slight way, hence how would people have taken it? It's really, it is, I did say to a woman who, a sort of, who does, a, who's quite in, really interested in feminism and fantasy, now how would she have taken it if she thought it was by a man, or she hadn't been so sure it was by a woman? And she was saying, oh, she didn't know because she was, I mean, because obviously people often assume that the main character is the, is, the, is the author and kind of, I mean, obviously like, someone like George Ancraft is obviously Mark Lawrence kind of, he's not wanting to be George Ancraft, but there's that sense of kind of, you know, this is, this is a kind of male fantasy of what it would be like to be unche- fairly unchecked, yeah. very powerful figure. Or, um, I mean, Christian Cameron's really open that his version of Alexander the Great is kind of him, as he would be if he was completely untrammeled from yeah. having a wife and needing having a job and you know needing to conform. And that kind of male that the James Bond fantasy. If people had thought yeah. that in Marath was my James Bond fantasy, what that I was a man having a kind of basically writing a kind of James Bond fantasy what on earth would people have taken how would people have taken the book <laughs> I suspect I'd have sold more copies if it had been published under a male name as epic fantasy but 
what people would have made of it, I don't know. And by the time they got to book three, what people would have made of it, I have no idea. (laughs) This is a super, super niche question, but uh, if I'm not mistaken in the book, the court is actually called the court of the broken knife, singular, but the title is knives, plural. Is there a reason why that changes from the book to the title? Oh, yes, because I didn't want it to just refer to the place. But also, so all the different, all the places that are meant, so the Court of Broken Knives, and then, yeah, it's the Court of the Broken Knife. And I didn't want it to be as obvious as it's named after the place. The Tower of Living and Dying, so the Tower is the Tower of Life, they they have their, the Tower of Life and Death. And then the House of Sacrifice is kind of the temple, but they never call it that. So none of the three places that the books, the three places actually technically exist they're all slightly different from and that yeah no that was deliberate and it was just me it was almost just me being deliberately snucking around in the hope someone noticed (laughs) thank you for noticing (laughs) some of the stuff like that is just me just almost deliberately just being deliberately slightly stupid and annoying I guess but yeah it was just a bit of a thing that then they're all non-existent technically they're non-existent places yeah, I wondered about that myself because when I saw we when we see the place and the statue and the and the yeah, the, yeah that's it. The, the statue is obviously Marith, even that, though it's Marith. Then I was like, okay, but Corner Broken Knives is that more about the plot? Is that more about Orhan's plot? That basically, uh, when I, I get in my head of you know, you imagine all kinds of things. Okay, Broken Knives, the fact that it went awry and then he changed, you know, he changed course then. The, like the snapping of the assassin knife kind of thing, like metaphorical. I was like, okay, what is this about? It's like, but then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's no, like, they are just, yeah, they are places that don't exist. So they refer to much wider things. Yeah. So, yeah, the Tower of Living Dying is obviously everything because that's, that's the big, the whole stuff about life and death is all through it. It's also obviously kind of, there's obvious, fairly obviously, really bad sexual pun about a tower of living and dying because it's depending <laughs> obviously what that is so it's kind of yeah referring to the kind of obvious toxic masculinity and male kind of power love blood loss and stuff that's going on in the book but yeah they're all and the house of sacrifices obviously the kind of dynastic houses and all the various temples so thalia's temple but also the temple marith builds to himself and also his the whole of the city of Ithaldon and the, the Tower of Life and Death. And then it's also, but then it's all, and all the different, so it's, yeah, they're all non-existent places, which are almost the place in the book, but are also kind of wider, just conceptual themes. So yes, the Court of Broken Knives, all the plotting and the kind of, the futility of a broken knife, the uselessness of it. The fact it's obviously been broken because it's done something the fact marath is broken they're all yeah they're all slightly more complex plays on the real places but i did just stuff i did stuff like that so there's stuff like um so the american books you have his red cloak his blue cloak and his bronzy color cloak and there's a reference to those different cloaks in the right books because i knew what the color i'd seen the covers already so obviously the first book i hadn't they did the cover afterwards but I knew that then I'd seen that he was going to have a blue cloak and then a sort of rusty coloured cloak. So there's a tiny reference to him having a cloak mm. of that, a new cloak of that colour in each of the books. And in fact, because I've never, I'm not particularly keen on that orange colour, 
in the House of Sacrifice, he says he's got someone's made him a new cloak and it's made of bronze thread and he doesn't like it. <laughs> and I do feel slightly like God. That's just basically me trolling the art of the art department. There, really, isn't it? <laughs> I just kind of felt I had to do it. <laughs> but it just kind of, oh, just yeah, just really stupid things like that. Just kind of felt. There's all kinds of stuff in there. There's um. So there's somewhere in House of Sacrifice, there's a reference to, it was originally going to be Little Georgie Ancraft, but I thought I couldn't actually say that because I get in too much trouble. But there's a little, someone somewhere says something like, oh, look, it's Little Georgie. I remember him way back from the village. I always knew he'd amount to nothing. And that's George Ancraft. And that's just just because Mark Lawrence is a friend of mine and he knows that George Ancraft is like, Another one of my ultimate, I love that boy to pieces. So, no one is ever going to know apart from me and people I tell and people I tell be like, yeah, I didn't notice that at all. No one, no, no one was ever going to see that. But it just felt like, yeah, I'm going to put that in. Just, like, <laughs> just oh, yeah, no, they're just, there's so much stupid stuff in there. So much stupid, stupid stuff like that that no one is ever going to know. But it's like... <laughs> I, I think we could we could go on for hours and hours, yes. but we don't want to keep you all yes. night. Um, but then we have you have things to do. But re- thank you so much for for um, for coming to chat with us. And when can we uh, expect? Uh, I'm a backer for the um, for the short story collection. But when can we expect your novel? Oh, the, yes. Yeah, so, um, the novel is published in April next year. It's with by, yeah, it's by a company called Luna Press. It's it's yeah, it's again, it's kind of really bleak the people who've read it already absolutely love it i'm really looking forward to getting the first reviews out because um yeah no i mean it's just and i it's a really personal book to me because it is really it's basically about what it'd be like for me it really was like you know writing about myself as a soldier in this army and kind of it's it's a really really intensely personal book to me it's really Again, it is really bleak and kind of it's got the, the kind of it's the, it's the same prose style and it is, yeah, it is kind of intensely personal to me. It's kind of it is those kind of massive wars seen from the perspective of someone who is utterly who is just a foot soldier in them, but who's utterly invested in them. And there's lots of stuff about mother. It's also about it's a kind of it was finished during lockdown. It's a kind of lockdown novel about women's experience i say women's experience now the the experience of being a carer for children which was most usually was women in most households in lockdown when you had that kind of awful it is that you know you were living through something actually absolutely catastrophic and for a lot of for a lot of people with caring responsibilities you know you were trying to get people with get children or elderly parents or whatever through something that was just you know, very, very difficult, while also, you know, my, I, I, lo- I couldn't write, I was, you know, trying to do my day job badly, I couldn't, I had to stop writing completely during lockdown, because I had children at home 24-7, and I was trying to do, you know, the, the basics of the, the job that pays the rent, and has the pension attached, and so it was about that, the stuff in there about that kind of loss of self, but also then kind of need to do it, that 
you know, what was I supposed to do? Tell my children I wasn't. <laughs> they could forget. I was quite happy for them to forget, forget how to learn to read and write and just watch TV for 12 hours because I needed to do my creative thing. I mean, you know, I couldn't do that. And no one, no one could do that as a parent and feel or kind of, you know, as a human and feel that was a good thing to do. So it's a lot of that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm really intensely proud of it. Yeah, it's called A Woman of the Sword, out with Luna Press in April. And then I should at some point be able to talk about some other exciting new projects, which are possibly even being a bit more hopeful and optimistic. And I'd like to think might not leave you crying and broken at the end, but might leave you feeling slightly optimistic. Because <laughs> I'm kind of trying. I'm sort of... That what I talked about, about how, you know, things that it is... Ne- there are some things it's necessary to kill and die for, and trying to talk about that in slightly more positive terms that yes you have to live with the consequences but at the same time there are some things it's necessary to kill and die for and that reminding yourself of that part of it that kind of the alternative is worse that not acting is worse or letting that kind of that yes yeah, sometimes you do have to make the decision from which there's no good outcome because you have to act and you might, there might be no, no good outcome, but one outcome is far worse. You can't take that. So, yeah, it's trying, I'm trying to talk about that a bit more and find something kind of. <laughs> and, yeah, and in a slight, that's written in a slightly different prose style, the stuff I can't talk about yet because that's trying to do something slightly different. And then I'm hoping to come back to writing some more massive epic fantasy at some point in the future. Looking forward, to, <laughs> looking forward to it. Yeah, can't wait for it. I'm here for all the tears and all the laughs. Oh. <laughs> I think that I fear there may be fewer laughs, fewer, yeah, fewer laughs in a woman of the sword because it's not got the, it hasn't got the kind of Tobias jokes. Some of Tobias is just flippant jokes about things. It hasn't got that comedy element in it that I like to think there is in the Court of Broken Knives with Tobias having this like snog. But yeah, it's got the. But it's more, I guess it's more human as well, because it's about a woman with children. Anyway, I don't know. But yeah, that's in April, and I'm really proud of it. And you'll Can't be- wait to read it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Oh, awesome. thank you. Thank well, you thank so, you so much, much for having me and letting me go on for two hours. My God. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, well, I think we could keep you for longer, but we don't want to keep you too long. So, yeah, we can definitely go on for hours about this one. And it'll st- this one will stick with me for a while. So, oh, great job. Actually, someone's doing a period. I have. I was taught the course broken ice was taught on an essay course, a, a, a course. It was one of the set books and on, on a course. And um, yeah, that's, I've had several. I think there's been a couple of academic papers, and I've told someone's doing a PhD, which is called something like Grim Dark. Possibly it's Grim Dark from. I can't remember what it's from, but I'm the I'm the kind of I'm in the title. So there we go. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Totally deserved. Yeah, well deserved. <laughs> Uh, Katarina, where can people connect with you if they want to find you? Uh, I think the page swing forum would be the easiest one. Uh, I'm also in, in, on Instagram at the errand. If you want to hit me up and chat. And PL, where can people connect with you? Oh, uh, website www.plstore.com. Uh, Twitter, that's where I normally uh, lurk. And uh, before we go blog, where Steve and I are both bloggers and um, I'm an assistant editor, and you can find reviews, my reviews on Goodreads, and reviews of books like Anna's books. Um, you can find on uh, on uh, Before We Go Blog, www.beforewegoblog.com. Cool. Thank you again, Anna, so much for taking time. We know you're busy, and we really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. Just with been, us. 
anyone, including Katrina, um, just message me. I'm on I'm on uh, Twitter as at Queen of Grimdark for slightly embarrassing, um, which is slightly embarrassing now. It's kind of I kind of feel if I change direction completely and write romance, I'm going to be really stuck because I can't change. It's the right change. It's the wrong. I can't change it. I'm going to stop with it. And it's all Mike Fletcher's fault. It was not. People keep saying I did it. I chose that myself. I did not. It was Mike Fletcher's fault. He was the one who dubbed me that. It was not self-titled. Anyway, but no one ever says to Jabba comedy. Oh, the self-titled Lord of Grimdark. Lord Grimdark. Everyone just accepts that. That's fine. But, um, but anyway, yeah, I'm on Twitter as um, at Queen of Grimdark. DM me and your address, and I can send you some lovely postcards because I've got some amazing fan art of Marith and Thalia and people, which is just so beautiful. Um, and it's just too beautiful to waste. So um, to just to kind of just not do stuff with. So DM me and I can send beautiful postcards because they're far too beautiful not to. Well, that would be stuff. lovely. Thank you so much. Yes, so DM me, Katrina. And anyone else listening, just DM me. And any of you guys, Steve, PL, anyone, if you haven't got them already. And I've sent you these beautiful postcards because they're just so cool. Oh, I, oh my gosh, I would, I would. Do, do, because that's just so cool. It's just unbelievable. I can't draw at all. I can draw stick figures. And then <laughs> these stars, these stars, in and Quint Von Cannon just drew stuff. And it was like they could see in my head. They just drew. The picture behind me is one of Stas's. And they just drew this stuff. And oh my God. So and they're just too good to waste. You get pictures and they're just too good to waste. They just need to go to everybody. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you'll have a DM for me in about two seconds after we read Yes, do this. DM me, really. And anyone else who's listening, or one of you who's listening as well, please DM me. <laughs> and I'll send you postcards. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and thanks everyone in the chat for coming by to, to chat with us. And it looks like there's some new fans to people listening. And hopefully, we didn't spoil them for you. If you haven't read yes. Them. But thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.